Hi, my name is Melissa K. Jones, founder of Little Black Desk Society and host of Women Who Excel. Women Who Excel is a leadership podcast featuring conversations with female founders to encourage excellence in leadership when serving our community, industry, and teams. I am excited to bring you a diverse group of women from different industries and backgrounds. Let's get started. Hi, April. Welcome Hi. to Women Who Excel podcast. I am excited to have you share your leadership journey with us. And for those who haven't heard of Inked Brands, tell us a little bit about what you do. Oh, goodness. Okay. So, yes, Inked Brands um, is how I became an accidental CEO. Um, I started a company called Studio Calico, which is a subscription-based scrapbooking supplies. Sounds super sexy, because it is. And um, gradually started working and collaborating with other female um, entrepreneurs, content creators. And about three years ago, or four years ago now, um, launched a brand called AllieEdwards.com um, with one of my friends in the scrapbooking industry and that took off with wild success and so we started adding more and more brands every year and we are basically the back-end infrastructure product design sourcing development um, all the finances and accounting all the fun stuff and they are the face and the content and the idea generation and promotion um, behind the brand I love it. When did you make that transition and start helping Allie with that? I think it was about four and a half years ago. I mean, the process okay. to change from being a singular brand to a platform that can white label took us about a year to year and a half to do. So in that period leading up to the launch of a brand, we were making a lot of internal changes. But yeah, officially it was, it was a September, probably September 2014 or 2015, somewhere along in there. That makes sense. So, because in 2015, then you were named the seventh fastest growing company in Kentucky, but That's obviously right. that didn't happen overnight. So That's right. what were some of the challenges you faced along the way in growing your team? Like you were saying, shifting platforms mm -hmm. to do that white label. Sure. Um, I think a lot of the strengths that constraints that we had in those early years, and so we still have to some degree, um, are the same constraints everyone has. Um, it's either you're constrained by time, you're constrained by money, or you're constrained by some skill that you do or don't have. And, um, you know, in those early years, I had more time to give to it than I did money. So I gave my time and I let the business self fund while I kept a job at a pharmaceutical company. And I started hiring less expensive employees than myself so that the business could fund itself a little bit more. Um, so that's how I handled kind of my limited time constraint in terms of money <laughs> um, tied into that. Like I said, I kept my day job so that I could reinvest the money. Um, and then later, as part of our influencer commerce model, when we switched from Studio Calico to Inked Brands, we raised almost $6 million in our Series A, and that was led by Buckhead Investment Partners out of Atlanta and followed along by some really great guys out of, guys and gals, um, Archer Gray out of New York, um, Amy Niokas is the founder there, um, Jesse Draper from Halogen Ventures, um, 
BDMI, which is Bertelsmann out of New York, and a couple others in there as well. Um, so they, they helped us um, to, to more properly capitalize. So it's one way is bootstrapping, which we did in the beginning, and then we flipped the switch and went the venture capital model as well. Um, and then the last, um, I would say, in terms of skill being a constraint, I think this is the area that we consistently feel constrained. And that is because, um, you know, a lot on a lot of the in the early years, we couldn't hire every single position because we were a bootstrap company. So we could not pre-hire every position that we possibly needed. So I started hiring to my weaknesses or to the areas that um, I didn't think were as valuable areas for me to spend my time. Um, but now, um, you know, it's, it's a constraint for us because of our location, you know, and being in Kentucky, there's certain types of talent that we can find specifically in fulfillment and customer service. And those are just fantastic in Kentucky. But when you start looking for marketing or brand or product design and merchandising, those are not skill sets that necessarily reside here. So we've had to get more creative in how we hire. Do we contract with people? And, and not care where they are and let them work remote? Or do is it a job that is more integrate in the team and do we have to get um, a little more creative in the package that we put together for them? So skill is one of those areas that I feel like is just constantly when you talk about talent, you're, you never feel like you've reached the summit. <laughs> you're just always trying to figure out how. Do you think taking on this, doing that first initial series changed or influenced your hiring strategy as far as growing your team? Oh, sure. Sure. Um, and especially because when you, when you take on money like that in a lot of cases, we went from being bootstrapped. So we were incredibly cost conscious. Like somebody would ask if they could go get a Starbucks and I'd go, mm, don't know about that. That's $6. <laughs> you know? So, and, um, but you know, to having, to having money in the bank, I wouldn't say that we like went hog wild and put hot tubs in the conference room or anything like that. Cause we certainly didn't, but, um, but we, there is pressure from your investment team to grow faster. And so when, when they tell you the way to do it is to hire, hire right and hire, hire quickly and get the right people on your team. Sure. We, we made some good hires back then. And then, um, we made some bad hires that cost us a lot of money and a lot of heartache and just, you know, we refer to those years and those not years, but more like months. <laughs> there was a, a about a 100 day period that was not nice and we're still paying for today. <laughs> so. Hiring the right people is so yeah. important. And it is so because much. if you hire the wrong people, then a lot of times they spend money in a way that you like beyond what they cost. They're out there spending money. Like it's like, it's not their own money. <laughs> It's an open purse and that doesn't work. That did not work for us at all. Do you think because of that, it changed some of maybe the structure or accountability within your team? Yes. Yes. I mean, for sure. I mean, I'm, I'm very high on accountability. So that's why we were able, it was a hundred day problem. It wasn't, you know, you know, a, a multi-year problem. And I think in a large corporation that would have gone unnoticed for a long time, but um, in a small company, there's nowhere to hide. <laughs> You know, if, sure. if something's not working, it's pretty, pretty awesome, pretty evident from the get go. So sure. And I think that we, we, um, what the other thing that changed was our perception about the type of person we needed to hire. Do we need to hire somebody with a big company background and experience, or do we need to hire somebody that had a, a, a mindset, um, 
that, that we share, like that scrappy mindset, this, um, I can figure it out. Um, I can do more with less and that's the type of, but they're really savvy and really smart. doesn't mean they have like scored a perfect score on the SAT, but does mean that they're street smart and they can figure things out. And also probably because still within that startup phase that you can make decisions without having like a ton of structure. Like structure is sure. important, but when you're in the startup phase, like can you make decisions for yourself to help the company? And are you confident in doing it without having to go check for an answer? Exactly. Very well said. Every 30 minutes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you said as far as like hiring and finding talent that you've gone outside of Kentucky mm -hmm. and have remote employees. How does that impact your team environment and the culture that you have within Inc. Brands? Like how did you navigate that? Um, sure. So our very first contractor is our web developer, Kenan, and I found him through a guy that I was in a wedding with, and I didn't know anything about web development. I actually thought the graphic designer could make my website, which he couldn't. <laughs> so um, he referred me to this guy named Kenan who lived in Germany. So our very first person was remote. And um, so from a cultural standpoint, we do a lot of video calls. Um, we... It, we, we've kind of learned to work within the parameters. So it's been part of our culture since day one. So anytime someone new is remote, gets integrated into, into our team, it seems very natural to us. But we have, right now we have employees um, in Kentucky and in Atlanta and in others in Georgia that are not in Atlanta. Um, Nebraska, Missouri, L, um, Los Angeles and California, I'm trying to think, Florida. That's we have awesome. all over the place. Well, good for you. So early in your business, do you remember a pivotal moment where you had to make a decision that would impact your growth to where you are now? Yes, definitely. I mean, it's kind of our light bulb moment that I, that I call it. Um, we I either was pregnant with the twins or I just had twins and um, a friend of mine in the industry, her name is Becky Higgins, did, um, has, has a brand called Project Life, which is a form of scrapbooking. So similar to what we did, but it's not a form that uses, um, you know, glue and scissors and whatnot. It's just inserting little cards into pockets. And so um, we have been doing small collaborations up until that time with good success. But then Becky and I just came together and discussed what a longer standing collaboration might look like. And um, the first, some of the first questions that we asked ourselves was one, can we do this with our current infrastructure? Which I think that, yeah, that we definitely could do that with our current infrastructure. Um, the problem is we had by the end of the first six months and in, into the agreement with her, we had doubled our ARR and tripled our customer base. And so that was like drinking from the fire hose. It was crazy. And the second question we asked ourselves is, can we cash flow it? And the answer at the time was, yes, we can cash flow it. Um, but what we didn't foresee was that we, because of the huge success, our domestic vendors weren't able to keep up. And so we had to start manufacturing almost 100% of the product in China, which meant longer lead times and flipping of our cash position. So we're asking ourselves, I feel like, the right questions. We're just not giving ourselves the right answers in the beginning. And then um, the last one is like... Um, but at the time we were seeing a plateauing in the scrapbook marketplace. So we're like, well, will this grow our business and offset that plateau so that we can continue to keep growing the business? And that answer was yes and remained yes, um, that it, that it did help, did help us at the time. But 
I really wish that we had consulted people smarter than we were at that time and said, here's all the other factors to consider and also make sure you're properly capitalized. We did figure it out ultimately, but I think we did it at a, at a huge expense because the first year practically we didn't make any money because we were having to spend so much money expediting things, having poor terms from the vendor or poor quotes from the vendor. And we had such a massive amount of people on wait list. We were, and we were sending them things that they had not paid for on purpose because we wanted to keep them happy. So it wasn't the product that they wanted, but it was another thing that kind of would satiate them and make sure that they didn't become dissatisfied with staying on a wait list for three, four or five months that they knew that we loved them and cared about them. So we ended up spending more money than we had to, if we had just properly planned from the get go. Was this before or after the series A? Oh, before. Okay, yes. So I, I wanted to clarify. <laughs> it was for especially anyone. painful. It was my money <laughs> that I didn't make. <laughs> and I think what you just said about making sure that you took care of the customer. And I think that's even like, it's extremely important, but even harder when you're bootstrapping mm-hmm. and making those choices of where do I spend the money or lose the money in order to maintain the relationship mm-hmm. and hindsight's always 2020 20. mm-hmm. um knowing what you do now like what would you do differently like as far as advisors or coaches or resources that sure. you would use I mean, hands down, one of the things that um, I realized I needed about six or seven years into the business was someone with a strong financial backbone. And I think I have good financial sense, but I have no training and I had no training at all in the area. And um, having somebody on our team, not an accountant, I didn't really understand the difference. This is, you guys, I, if I did this, if I grew a business from like $4,000, which was my initial investment to 4 million in under four years, like... I am not that smart. <laughs> so I feel like other people could do it. And I did it in Kentucky of all places. But like, I thought an accountant was the same thing as a finance person. So I would ask my accountant at the end of the year, I'd say, well, you know, how did we do? And he was like, well, here's your numbers. And I go, was that good? And he's like, well, this is what you owe in taxes. And I was like, like you are so unsatisfying. I mean, I think that's a pretty good number, but I don't like paying those taxes because that's a lot of money and I could use that money to grow the business. How do I do that? And, um, it, I did, we didn't have any financial planning for the business because I didn't know who we needed. Um, and so that's my biggest thing is like, if you're a creative, know your strengths, like know, know your strengths and go higher to your weaknesses, even if it's a contractual service. And there's so many good ones out there now. Like I didn't even understand that there were like even some retired CFOs out there that had a wealth of knowledge and experience to just do these part-time gigs. What's the name of that? Um, is it called like part-time CFO or something like that. You can probably Google it and find a, a CFO that c- will come and work with you contractually. And you don't have to spend a ton of money to get amazing expertise. And then those people have a network of people that, that can also help you as well. I agree. And to your point, they're not just telling you taxes, they're doing forecasting and trends. And like you said, where's your growth? Mm-hmm. Where are your opportunities? With and, that, and hey, April, you might, if you buy things in China, you're not going to have net 60 terms when you start, and that's going to flip your cash position. And at which point I would have said, what's a cash position? <laughs> so well, at least I would have known the question to ask. <laughs> so, the net terms is sometimes yes. for people too. Yes, exactly. 
So as you grew your team, you hired someone in finance. Yes. Mm -hmm. What practices then did you create to find and retain additional team members that were right for your business? Well, I definitely think this is one area where we started the company right. So um, we did a lot of things wrong, but in the areas that we do right, I'll pat myself on the back a little bit. Um, my background prior to starting the business was from the pharmaceutical industry. So like think about all the rules and regulations there could possibly be. And I had those. Um, but the background I had also been taught really good HR practice. I had formal hiring and review process. And, and so early on in the business, I was like, I knew that performance review, reviews were a thing. And I was taking the template that I had been given with the pharma company and amending it and making it more my own and for the company, but also sticking with the things that I didn't even like necessarily like doing, but knew that there was a purpose for doing them. And so, um, so, and I also set the culture to be a really nice place to work. Like I wasn't as caught up with how people dressed or how people, um, you know, looked on the outside at all. It was more about like, are, is this like nice place to work? We're kind people. We're not yelling. We're supportive. We make mistakes, but when we make mistakes, like the biggest thing for me is every employee is going to make a mistake, but it's how you handle that mistake. It's like, do you call attention to the fact and say, Hey guys, I made a mistake. I'm not even sure all the, impl the implications of the mistake I made, but I want to let the T know because I know it could potentially impact you. Is that the type of character that they have? Are they honest? Like a huge, big thing for me is honesty. Like, I don't care what the truth is. I care that you tell me the truth a hundred percent of the time. Um, another characteristic of the culture we are is we're a wholesome culture. I mean, we just, we just are. And I think at first, um, you know, I, people would come into the office and they'd be like, Oh, people don't cuss here. And I was like, Oh yeah, yeah, we really don't. And I was almost caught off guard by bits because I don't, do those I don't cuss and and I try to talk in a nice tone and I try to be friendly and we try to be nice and welcoming then um I think naturally the people I hired and the people that came to work even if they weren't like that in their normal life that was the culture that was created here it's a pleasant place to work I don't want ever anyone to come to work and feel intimidated or feel um like like they're not smart or like they're not valued um so I feel like because of that retention is, has not been that difficult for us. And any of the turnover that we do have is sometimes good turnover. Like it's sometimes there's been people, one of the first assistants that I hired, she progressed within the company and into the product side and became involved in product development. And she got an opportunity to go work somewhere else. It was honestly a really awesome opportunity for her. And while we were sad to see her go, I was really glad that we, she had been able to grow within the company and kind of reach a pinnacle here and then take that and apply that somewhere else to help somebody else's business. Um, one of the things that I do find difficult is finding talent. And we kind of talked a little bit about this earlier that I think every company has a similar struggle. Um, but now the company is to the size that we have an HR director and we hired her because she loves recruiting. So I knew that that would be key in, in the growth of the business and in, um, in, in the performance of the business It's having somebody who loved recruiting and loved it to the point like she wants, she doesn't just like hiring people. She likes hiring the right people. Um, I did ask her before this podcast, um, she still uses LinkedIn as a, as one of her primary tools, but a key practice for her is to 
as she knows what our strategic plan is, she'll start going out and in, involved in our strategic plan, we'll identify the types of people we may wanna hire, and she'll go out early on and start forming relationships with those people on LinkedIn or in, on other social platforms and build the relationship with them. And even if they aren't the persons that we hire, they usually have referrals to people. Um, and then I would also say just um, one of my own thoughts about hiring is that, and I know this quote is out there, I feel like it's a Steve Jobs quote, but A players hire other A players, but B players, it doesn't work the same way. They hire C or D players. And so I think that's absolutely true. A players want to hire other people who are just as awesome as they are or better than they are even. Like A players almost want to hire A plus players because they realize how valuable it is. But, um, but B players either don't recognize that the need for that or um, they they want to stay the top dog and so they'll hire somebody either at or below their 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 capabilities. And so if you really want to to have success as an organization, you're gonna look for those A players all I the time. With you. Especially with the A players, my interpretation on that from experience as well is that a players like they want someone that will challenge them. Yes. Like they're not intimidated to learn from someone that's smarter than them because it, they know that by learning from other people and surrounding themselves with smart players, smart a players mm -hmm. that it's only going to enhance them and help them grow and develop themselves. Mm -hmm. And so it's that law of attraction. Like if you can recognize your own potential mm -hmm. and where you're able to grow, you gravitate towards those people that have similar mindset and want to grow and, like you said, you create that culture where people thrive off of each other. Yes, absolutely. And it's something else that you had mentioned about your HR director. I love that you include her in the strategy. So that way she can always be on the lookout for potential new hires or new team members for the organization, because it's similar to selling. Like mm -hmm. you're always like looking for leads or always scouting team members. Mm -hmm. And even if, you don't have an immediate need knowing somebody. So when that time opens, you have the right person in place. I think for her, like, it sounds like it's a treasure hunt. Yes. Finding, like the best person. She loves so it. She's always looking like, who are these people? What's their relationship? What's their experience? What can they bring to enhance brands? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And now that she's so integrated within the organization, she knows exactly who we're looking for, which is great. That's awesome. She better uh, never leave. <laughs> I don't know so who will find up. her replacement. <laughs> so I want to touch on that and back up to a couple of things. So you said you don't want her to leave, but you also talked about the team member who was in product development and went somewhere else. So I think one that is something that I hear some people have a struggle with is team members leaving and because they're afraid that they're going to take proprietary information or that they're taking secrets and leaving or they're just not used to attrition mm -hmm. and turnover and I believe that if you've done your job well as a leader and a manager within the business place and outside that you want to enable somebody and empower them to carry their journey and professional mm -hmm. career on to somewhere else like that is the highest compliment mm -hmm. you don't want them to stay with you forever so with that being said like mm -hmm. how did you have that mindset of the appreciation of seeing a team member grow and go on to another company how did well, you think, develop that or like can you speak to that I think it depends it, it completely depends on your perspective and like even some of the markets that you're in like when whenever um 
I was in the pharmaceutical market and I didn't own my own business and there were thousands of reps in the nation. Losing one rep is honestly, you know, you don't want to say not a big deal, you know, but when you're a five person team and you lose a person, that's 20% of your workforce. That is a huge deal, you know? So early on, I hated it. It was so bad and I didn't view it as a compliment. I was like, oh, you guys, I feel so betrayed. Do you know how much work? But they were also very kind. And I, I've never had somebody leave in like in a key position and leave badly. Like, and I think that's part of the respect that we've built up. Nobody has really left us in a lurch because they understand the size of the company that we are whenever they leave and like how important it is that they transition it well. So I will say put that, so if, if they can transition well, then I always feel good about it. But, um, but <laughs> I don't know. I think it really depends on your size and your perspective because it is a compliment, but at the same time, it's like a backhanded compliment because you're like, Oh, great. Good for you. That means a lot more work for me and my team members. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so It's tough. And especially when you have crazy. a good team member and they drive, sometimes they're drivers of the team and they have an awesome opportunity to lose them. I mean, it's still a relationship at the end of the day and it's a little bit heartbreaking. Sure. It is. It is. <laughs> but I think it goes back to you. Like, how do you create that transition? Like, have you established the relationship from the point of hiring through yes, the time of employment? And having those re employment reviews. So it, it, when we first started, we only had to perform misreviews once a, once a, every six months. And, um, and then now that we have an HR director, we implemented, we use the software, it's called Bamboo HR and, um, just a plug for them. Maybe they'll give me a little discount next month, um, but we actually really like it. And, um, everybody on our team has acclimated to it really well. And we do quarterly performance reviews. Awesome. Now they're not really, really huge and really in depth and we kind of keep it super simple. And we have touch bases more often than that. I mean, most managers are talking to their employees at least once a week anyway, but, um, but in that software, you have a form, like a formal review, a documented review every three months. And so I think that we can see, um, we can see the trends, we can have those conversations and you keep that open line. You start to understand, well, what do they want from a career path? So you can, we, we even designate really early on there. There's like little fields that we can, that we can fill in that, that, um, that kind of state like where that person is at, like, are they, do we think we might lose them in the next six months or 12 months or whatnot so that we can be more proactive and we can either go in and offer that person a, a career path or a, a, a training program or a developmental opportunity that challenges them and may get them to stay a little longer. Or maybe it's the complete reverse side. It's like, we know they're going to leave. They've been super transparent with us that we're going to leave and we can go ahead and work on that transition plan, you know, six months out. Um, it's always a challenge. And, and the one thing that I, I consistently, and I'll say I get offended, but I mean, I'm using the offended word really loosely. It's I tell every employee all the time. I'm like, if you're leaving, like you can tell us, we're not going to kick you out. And I tell them this all the time. We're not going to kick you out. You can be open and honest with us, but most of the time,
Um, they don't tell us when they're thinking about leaving. It's kind of like these gut feelings if you have a close relationship with them. And that's why those one-on-ones every week and those performance reviews every three months where you can talk to them because you can kind of get that inkling. It's very rare that someone at like below a management level position will come to us and tell us. But let this be a lesson. If you are below the management position and somebody tells you that, you should probably believe them and they will view you in a better light. They'll probably think, oh, look at that person. They're so mature that, you know, they're probably management level or director level because they can deal with this information and no, I'm not really going to kick them out the door. <laughs> so. I agree. That's a one. That's a tough thing for, I think for anybody to do to make that call and yes. tell somebody that they are thinking about leaving because they don't know how people will react. But also too, I think what the most important thing is the communication lines mm-hmm. and making sure that those are open and that like you have in place are consistent and talking about what their career path is and their performance. Because like you said, you know internally, like you have that gut check because you know their behavior, you know their personality, you know like what their goals are. You can pick up on signs and clues on when you think someone may be transitioning into a different path. Mm -hmm. And that only happens because you've established that relationship. So you talked about wholesome and honest and kind and supportive. Are those values that you have created specifically within your business? Are those just understood? Like, do you have a structured value system within your business that plays into your performance reviews and to the behavior and practices that you have? You know, I wish I could say that we had a clever system because I see other businesses out there and I read books and I tour businesses. I'm like, oh, that is so clever. You have that little acronym and everybody <laughs> knows it. And um, we don't, we don't have that. I mean, I feel like maybe that's something while we have had so such low attrition the last few months and our HR director, maybe that's something I can task her with, <laughs> but um, to, to make our what we all know and understand intrinsically is our, is our value system more tangible, especially easily and more easily transferable to new hires. But generally, generally um, we're a quiet workplace. And so we have, we're trying to liven it up a little bit, but so many of our people are like, put their blinders on and get to work and hammer it out type people um, that, that that's been a little bit of a challenge is to kind of get people to come out of their shells a little bit more and have, and be okay with having conversations during the work day. <laughs> so yeah. coffee time when co- the coffee is, when the coffee is being made is usually the, the biggest time for conversation. That's awesome. Tell us about a time when you had to lead your team through a monumental change. Oh, um, well, I think it was pretty much after the success that we had with Becky Higgins, we made the decision to white label our technology platform and allow these other influencers like Ali Edwards and different ones to come on. And that was a huge change to our infrastructure. And I think I really underestimated because to me, I was like, of course, we're going to do this because I'm, I'm personally very pro growth. Um, but what I realized in that process was like the product team and those that are like the graphic designers and the people sourcing the product, they like certainty. And to go from sourcing and designing scrapbooking product to sourcing and designing other things that they had never designed before and they didn't know what the result was going to be, if it would be successful or not, um, was really scary to them. Um, and so I started realizing that and realizing like how to to talk about 
change and how to um, learn and hire people that are open and flexible in those situations and but can still warn you and they're still like they aren't so flexible and so aren't so go with the flow that they, they won't warn you about the potential risk of the decision that you're wanting to make um but ultimately like it's your business and you kind of have to make the decision even if you know if it's not a popular one um for me it was i knew that scrapbooking was not going to sustain us for a hundred years because i could see that in the um business to business relationships, there was a downward trend, even though we were still on the upward trend or, um, especially with the addition with Becky Higgins for project life, I was like, this, like this ain't going to keep going up like this. People are, are going to get their closets full of scrapbooking supplies. And even though I personally really enjoy the craft doesn't mean that, that there's going to continue to be as large of a market for this, um, for other people. Um, so it's not in my favor or it's not in the employee's best interest for me to put my head in the sand and to ignore that fact just because they're resistant to change. Um, you know, I, I, now that I'm, now that I'm a parent, I kind of liken it to my kids a lot. It's like, just because they want to eat sweets doesn't mean I, I let them do that. Um, I think it's, it's just all about communicating. Hey, you may not like the phrases that I like to use are like, you may not like this and that's okay if you don't like it. But here's why, and I, I think we do a good job here of explaining why. Um, we I didn't do that in the beginning, but but now um, I think I've learned to. Our HR directors really helped me with that. Awesome. <laughs> so because sometimes I move so fast that you forget that not everyone is like with you on it because you haven't communicated it. So so definitely explaining why. Um, and then I would say guiding them through the transition is once I get the head of that department, even if it's a department of one or two people um, on board with it. I mean, I let them it become empowered in terms of how they're going to um, deliver the information to their team, what that means to their team, what things may have to change. I let them own those pieces of the decision. Now I'm, I'm here for, for guidance or for questions. And, um, and then I, obviously we talk about what their other resources are, but if they have ownership over it, it gives them some, some sense of control. And, um, I don't know. I just think they feel better about the change if they have some control over it. And then, um, in terms of like, Learn, what I learned <laughs> through through all of this um, is that it's okay to do a lot of things wrong because <laughs> I in some cases like I look back and I'm like wow I did like nine out of ten things wrong but we still succeeded <laughs> so it's still possible to be successful and make a lot of mistakes I just I wish that I would have taken the time or had a mentor that had been in this space before um, that could have helped guide me through a bit of this. So it wouldn't have been quite so painful. That's one of the tough parts about entrepreneurship. A lot of mm -hmm. things we feel like we're the only ones figuring mm -hmm. it out for the first time, or sometimes there are certain scenarios where we are, it's trial by fire. Yes. <laughs> In a lot of cases it is. <laughs> but a couple of things that you said that I want to emphasize is one, like transitioning your team through monumental changes explaining the why is important because like you said like they don't understand where you're coming from and so like giving them context to the situation and what to the extent that you're able to like helps them 
better understand what's happening and also removes any ambiguity or sometimes unsureness that they have with it because like you said they want that certainty and they want to have some control over the situation that's why people are so resistant to change is because of fear of the unknown and so I love that you have then your department heads take ownership of their portion of the transition because it gives them some of that power back. Like they have control now over the situation because then they can drive their portion of the change. Sure. And I think that's key for them, like buying into. Absolutely. Yeah. And usually one, I mean, I, I would say it's a very rare occasion that I have to make a decision and, and know that people either don't understand where I'm coming from or completely disagree with me. At least by the time the decision is made, they can see my point of view. Even if they disagree with it, they can see that I might be right. And, and that may be wrong too, <laughs> but then they're okay with that. And they're like, okay, well, you know, she may be wrong and she said she may be wrong, but we're going to try this out. And if, if, if it's not right, then we'll check and adjust and we'll, we'll do something different the next time. But in, in the cases that you don't have all the information, you have making no decision is worse than making a decision. I agree. So, and you can't be afraid to fail forward. That's right. Because you're leading by example saying like, I'm willing to try this and willing to be wrong at it. Mm-hmm. And by you enabling and like embodying that, it encourages them to do the same thing. Like within your culture, like you were saying, like mm-hmm. you'll support them if they try something and it doesn't work out. Sure. Two things that I want to back up on too is when you were first coming into like this leadership role, and maybe you already had this established from your previous position, but did you find that there was a challenge when you were making hard decisions like that to balance being liked and versus being respected? Because I think a lot of times people are afraid that people won't like them when they're making hard decisions and that they'll lose support or challenge within relationships, like how did you navigate that? Goodness, I think so much of that is so intrinsic. Um, I've, quite honestly, I think I just have, I have such, I had such a good upbringing and realized that my self-worth didn't lie in other people's approval of me or whether they liked me or not, that I'm, at the end of the day, I'm the one that has to answer for what I do. And I'm, I'm probably my own worst critic in terms of that. Like I'm, I beat myself up over bad decisions and I beat myself up over the way I say things or the way I didn't say something when I should have said something and, you know, on and on and on. But, um, but I really have never worried about what other people think, (laughs) worry about what I think. Um, and, um, I don't know. I, it's one of those things that I, I want to be liked. Everybody wants to be liked. Um, but if, if I'm not, and I feel like I've made a decision that is for that person's best interest or, or for the interest of the organization as a whole, like sometimes one or two people do have to suffer for the, the whole. And if I've made the decision that's going to be most beneficial to the organization and thus the most amount of people, then, then I, I do feel fine about that. And I don't worry about being like, but I do think it's, it's really important. Like We've one time in our history, uh, once or twice, it depends on kind of how you had her. There's a period of a few months that we had to go through um, a couple rounds of layoffs. And the way we went about it was the first round, we basically just didn't, we, we had identified positions that were, we were 
in the process of hiring for and we decided not to hire for those positions and then anyone that left in a few other key positions we said we're not going to hire for those and so we had some natural attrition so we really didn't like have to lay anybody off we didn't some of the contracts that we had with contractors we didn't renew and that type of thing but it really didn't feel painful but then later we had I think there was two or three people that were displaced and and kind of a reorganizational type thing that we did and so you know two or three people out of like 50 or 60 is a lot I mean it feels like a lot because that's a those are you know the person you sat next to at work and um that's hard like I, I I know the it's hard for the employee because their life has been disrupted and I get that wholeheartedly, but I want like employees. One of the things they don't understand is how hard that is on management and how hard that is on the business owner. Because in, for me, I felt like I had failed them and I didn't, I don't like that feeling. And I just one that you're very scared to repeat and you're very careful not to repeat because you've messed with somebody's life and their livelihood. So, um, we worked with them when we, once we understood that the positions might be displaced we actually started networking around town and we started finding out where there might be positions that would be good for them and for um two of the people that were displaced we were able to um like in the meeting we were telling them they were displaced we're like but there's this job over here and it, if you want it it's kind of like yours for the taking so it was less disruptive to their lives and for one of the girls I mean, I feel like she is in such a better position and like, I'm, I'm kind of offended. I don't, I haven't gotten a thank you note for it. <laughs> um, I'm sure there's still some hard feelings, but um, like, I think she's awesome. It just was like, it just it happened. Bad timing happened and some other things that were outside of my control and outside of her control. And now she's in a really awesome position and seems to be doing really great. So, you know, sometimes it's, it happens yeah. for the best. Yeah. Anytime that there is a separation. Mm -hmm. It's tough for all parties involved. I think regardless of usually the person that is personally impacted the most takes it the hardest. I mean, it's like mm -hmm. if you're in a relationship and you're the person mm -hmm. that got dumped, you're the mm -hmm. person that's going to take it the hardest. Doesn't mean that the other person didn't, mm -hmm. you know, have strong feelings about it either. And I think it's all like how you handle those transitions, like you said earlier. And I love that you reached out within the community to find out like how could you make it an easier transition for them because it does it impacts their livelihood their families their well-being all those different things there's a book called people over profit and he talks about that exact same scenario about like how can you make that transition good because for all people at the end of the day you're going to run into these people again I yes mean, you do i remember especially in bowling green where there's fifty thousand people in town you're going to see him at Kroger. <laughs> I've had the same experiences where I've had to let people go, like people that were friends before I got a promotion or after the fact, like we've, or even in different managerial roles where we have a good relationship, but you have to look at the big picture for the sake of the business, the team, all these things. And sometimes you have to let people go and mm -hmm. it never makes it easy. I mean, I've if you're out, if you're, a, if you're a CEO or a leader in any of your organizations and your goal is to be liked, then you're in the wrong position because the kindest thing that you can do for any of these employees is make decisions for their best interest. And you can't do that based on your presupposition of whether they're going to like you or not. Um, okay. I had a, a manager at, at the pharmaceutical company who will remain nameless, but um, 
that was his, I mean, that was his total goal was like, he wanted to be liked. And as a result, he didn't deliver tough news and not delivering that tough news meant like major change that came down the pike later on. And it wasn't a kind thing to do to anyone. And in the back end, even though people liked him and thought he was super cool at first, in hindsight, wasn't super cool what he did to any, any of his team members. So like it, it never come, it never, um, never works out the way you think it's going to work out. I agree. Brene Brown, I know you Mm -hmm. mentioned her separately in her dare to lead book, but she says in there, there's a phrase called clear as kind. Mm -hmm. And I agree with that wholeheartedly, like being upfront, being clear in your communication, like it helps so much with those transitions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Brene has so much good work. She was, um, and that's a book that I think we were all anxiously awaiting when we were working with them on the Courage Works project and, um, and uh, Rising Strong was the book at the time. And, and, and this Dare to Lead was like the baby about to be born. And so I think we were all just anxiously waiting for it. And I'm so excited to see the success. And now she has a new show on Netflix. Yes, so I excited wait. for that as well. <laughs> So what are one of the most important lessons you've learned about yourself as a leader in this process of growth? Um, I think it's something that we've kind of already hit on um, is I think I've learned that I show my care and my concern toward employees and my team by making sure that they have a consistent income stream and that while feelings are super important, um, that my number one job as a CEO is to keep the money coming in. And like, I'm not doing my job if I don't do that well. Which that requires the hard decisions that you make. Yes, absolutely. And that, yeah, it's not, it's not the best. (laughs) It may look glamorous, but I assure you it is not glamorous. (laughs) Weighted with responsibility. Yes, exactly. I don't have my private jet yet. So when I get that, I'll let you know. (laughs) What are the top three things you would tell another female founder to encourage her in her leadership and growth? Oh, wow. Um, Well, one is for me that I think was incredibly important was to get as much experience as I could outside of my own business. One, I think it gives you perspective on what is valuable. So it may even give you a business idea that you never would have thought of otherwise. Um, But also because it's so much cheaper, like when the pharmaceutical company was sending me off to all these trainings, I didn't know that I was going to go out and start my own business, but I was like, oh, this is really great. I'm really learning a lot. But then once I had a business, I was like, oh, I didn't have to pay for that training. This is great. I got paid to be trained to do my job now. It's fantastic. Um, Because I was making mistakes, you know, in terms of, I'm sure I made hiring mistakes. I'm sure that um, I made managerial coaching mistakes. Um, I think that was one of the biggest things. I was a manager at the age of 24-ish, 25. And there were some reps that I was managing that were, you know, probably between 35 and 45 years old. One of them I know was almost 60 and she's, she was awesome. And because she taught me so much, she was a registered nurse before she became a rep. And so as a manager to those really awesome, highly motivated people, um, I learned a lot about how to coach really smart, cool people, but also learned how to deal with problems. Like when one of them was, um, forging doctor signatures, I, I was like, I felt so challenged to, because again, honesty high on my list of important things. So if you lie and you're dishonest, like 
you're out of my book. So I was like, how do I get rid of her as fast as I can? Because this is like her example and the rest of the team makes me look bad. It makes me look like I'm okay with this situation because everybody knew it was happening, but nobody could prove it. So I became really good at investigating then. Um, but yeah, I mean, I figured out on somebody else's dime how to deal with a lot of these problems. Like my first person to fire, which I think is important. Like it's pivotal. You'll never forget the first person you fired. And it was the girl that was forging signatures. So yeah, that was, that was like not a fun one to fire, but an easier fire than somebody who, when you, when you have to fire somebody who's really trying hard to work, but then they're just not capable of doing it. That is a tough person to fire. And this is a tough conversation, but firing somebody because they're lying and doing illegal things is a lot easier. I was still nervous, but I learned how to do it. You know, I learned how to do it and how to deliver the news and how not to get punched in the face, you know? So that all those things are really important. Um, cause my parents paid a lot of money for my braces, so I didn't want to mess up my teeth. Um, but another, I would say another, another, um, you said three things. I may not have that much. I may not have that much of good advice. I'm worried. Um, I do have a second one. Um, but I would say like, if you've already left a corporate job or you've never had a corporate job, I think reading, reading books is really, or listening to books or podcasts or whatever is super important. Um, one of the staples that I had just from a coaching and hiring kind of perspective was one minute manager. I feel like that is probably on the New York times bestseller list like every year because there's all kinds of new managers that just need that book. Um, another one I like is really is um, now discover your strengths. And I'm sure there's other newer books out there that speak to this, but what I learned through that was like, one of my weaknesses is I'm terrible at history. I'm ter terrible. Like I'm so interested in history and I love hearing it probably because it's, it feels like I'm hearing it for the first time every time I hear it. Cause I, it goes in one ear and literally out the other before I can, remember it like it was a struggle for me in school to get good grades on history tests because it was I could not retain history like for some reason I could not retain it if you give me a number like not a year but if you give me a number to remember I can remember that number and I can remember why that number is important but if it's a history year you forget it it's so crazy that I can't remember years but I can remember business numbers balance sheet P&L numbers margin numbers I can I got all those just fine um but the book was about like using your strengths to compensate for your weaknesses. And that made so much sense to me. I was like, I need to figure out what each of these team members strengths are and play to those. It, it, you're, it's really, it takes a lot of effort to improve your weaknesses, but it only takes like a tiny bit of effort to improve your strengths. And if I could figure out how to do that, then they can compensate for anything that they're lacking. And so that to me was super important just as a, a, a a paradigm shift for me. Um, I was always trying to work on my own weaknesses and like really upset that I wasn't getting history. But instead I was like, well, like I can compensate for it in this other way. I, it's not that I disregard history. I'm really good at the applications of history. I'm just terrible at remembering the facts. <laughs> so, um, and then maybe the last one, oh, I did mention on, in here um, when I was making notes of books, The Dare to Lead, which you said by Brene Brown is a good one. I think there's, Dave Ramsey has a good one called Entree Leadership, and he talks a lot about hiring in that book, which I think is really important. He like, takes a long, 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 long time to hire. Sometimes as a small business owner, I don't think you could take as much time as Dave wants you to take, but just those are good principles in there. Um, 
And then my personal thought is like, don't pay a ton of money for business seminars. Like I feel like the conventions and the seminars are great for networking and great for connecting with other people. But in terms of gaining a lot of knowledge, you can spend so much money on travel and, and lodging and attending the seminar. And then you're, you're probably not getting the same amount of knowledge out of it. Um, so we generally treat seminars and events more for networking and connections and learning and training more for like, you know, you can get so much information online now. You can get so much information in books and in podcasts that, um, you know, paying for, you know, a, a couple hundred dollars for an e-course is so much more cost effective than paying, you know, a few thousand to ascend a, a business seminar and really not get nearly as much out of it. I agree. What's the ROI? Um, mm -hmm. Like, because you're not just paying money, like you're also losing time away from the business and then money that you can make while you're in the business. So it's like a double. Exactly. People don't consider that. But the connections, if there's going to be someone there or there's a, a reason for you to be there for your industry, then I think it's important to go. But don't, don't let the knowledge be the, for me, I think I've never been able to justify the value and the cost of a seminar based solely on the learning that I get from it. It's just know what you're going for mm -hmm. and do your research. Mm -hmm. it's, I'm talking about these really big expensive ones. I'm not talking about, Promise you know, page. <laughs> like, like a book tour or something. That's completely different. I think at the end of the day, like what are you wanting out of it? And are you going to get that in return and making sure that you do your research? Like the onus is on you. Like who are the speakers? Mm -hmm. What are they talking about? Or what are they knowledgeable in? What's their mm -hmm. experience? I mean, that's a whole nother subject. But For sure. I agree with you. Like, as far but as I, mean, I think as an entrepreneur, you're targeted for those constantly, like constantly. So it's an easy one. You go, oh, I could use that. Oh, I could use that. I could use that. And so it's easy to fall prey to that. Don't. But also, too, the other thing is you learn a lot through execution. Yes. So you can as, learn as much as you want. And I think that's to the point of like the concentrated learning. Like if you said it's an e-course, like, mm -hmm. are you implementing that? Because that's when, where you're learning, does this actually make sense? And where do I need to refine it? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. One of my key things, and I guess we can add this as a third to the list so that I totally answer the question is pay attention, which is one thing that I tell everyone is just pay attention. Um, so much is lost because people um, don't, look at the results of what happened or don't um, look at what's going on in another industry and apply it to your own. Yes. Um, but I could, what's, what's interesting about the scrapbooking industry that I've talked to people in the planner industry, which if you know anything about all these planners, like Aaron Connor planners, I was like, literally the planner industry is like what the scrapbook industry was 10 or 15 years ago. And I was like, Oh my goodness, guys, this is like, I can see into the future. Like I I'm prophetic now. It's fantastic. So like so many of those things, I'm like, Oh, it's a cycle repeating itself. And once you start seeing those patterns because you've paid attention, it becomes really easy to be more accurate about predicting the future and predicting what's going to happen and knowing where you should move as a business. I agree. It's looking at the big picture, but also then knowing like what you said, looking at other industries and seeing what information can translate over. And mm -hmm. I think there's so much that to your first mm -hmm. advice is taking ownership within like a corporate position and like looking at all the different factors of business, where you're at within your role, all the different departments, because then that comes into play when you build your own business. And mm -hmm. then also if you're taking cues from other industries and saying, okay, like, what practices there can I apply mm -hmm. to my business or my role here? Like it all correlates mm -hmm. at the end of the yes. day. 
like there's nuances that are specific to each industry, but mm-hmm. business yes. is business. Well, I mean, I think, and, and too, <laughs> if you're an employee somewhere and you're getting feedback, and I think what's funny about, um, I think when you're young in the workforce, you think that feedback is given to you on your performance review. So if it's not given to you on a performance review, you've not gotten feedback, which is absolutely not the case. Um, anytime anyone, whether it's a peer or it's um, one of your superiors or someone else is talking to you, they're probably giving you feedback. Take that, pay attention to that and learn from it. And um, don't say they haven't given you feedback. <laughs> so you probably have, even, even if it's subtle, even if it's subtle, like take that and run with it. Before I close out, I want to add to that. So when I was in my early 20s, I had a manager who made a suggestion to me and I took it clearly as a suggestion and didn't do it when it was really a direction. Yes. (laughs) Hindsight again, 2020, but to your point, always be listening. Someone is giving you feedback. Sometimes it's just delivered. It doesn't have a label on it that says feedback. It doesn't have to have that label on it. Well, I have loved chatting with you today, April. Thank you so much for being on the Women Who Excel podcast. And I look forward to catching up with you later. And also, if you're listening, make sure that you visit inkedbrands.com and check out all that April and her team are doing. Thank Thank you you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Women Who Excel. Continue the conversation about leadership with our VIP listeners inside the academy at littleblackdeskacademy.com. Again, littleblackdeskacademy.com. Enjoy the podcast, share it with a friend, and or leave a review sharing what you enjoyed most and why someone else should listen to it. Let's go lead with excellence.